from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. It was so much happening there, and the black culture was so vibrant. Um, Freeman talking to people about that, was it hard just not to get real nostalgic? Well, I think the uh, difficult part was keeping focus. I mean, everything deserved to play. Everything that we heard about. You think, oh my God, that's not going to work. And the show opens when? It's like, okay, but we're going to make it happen. You're going to make it happen. There are a lot of moments where um, you will be entertained, and then there there will be a lot of moments when you will be educated. So you will be edutained. Edutained, I love that. (laughs) In some modern parlance, he may have been called a ward boss. Uh, There was a certain gangster element to him. Jordan Chambers was the type of man that racists were afraid of. I'm Sarah Fenske. A new play debuting at the Grandel next weekend takes audience members back in time to a largely forgotten piece of St. Louis history. Take the A train was on the radio, and the most happening night spot in town was Club Riviera. You must take the A train. Club Riviera hosted popular performers like Duke Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald. Located just north of Del Mar on the edge of the Central West End, it was at one point one of the biggest black-owned clubs in the entire country. And now it's the focus of that new play at the Grandel, live at the Riviera. And joining us now with more is Thomasina Clark. She is the director of Live at the Riviera. Thomasina, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. And we're also joined today by Freeman Word. He is the playwright who wrote Live at the Riviera. Freeman, welcome. Thank you. So, Thomasina, take us back to the 1940s. What did Club Riviera look like? Oh, my goodness. When you opened the doors at 4460 Del Mar, there were, there were stairs that were leading to the second floor. And once you got to that second floor, there was a lobby area. And when you opened those doors, you entered into a room about the size of a basketball court, perhaps. Big room. Huge room with a a large dance floor in the middle and uh, seating around the side. And there was a balcony that wrapped around from the bandstand, uh, from the left side of the bandstand all the way around to the right. The place probably uh, held about 400 comfortably. Wow. And could probably maybe get another 100 in somewhere. So, yeah. And who were some of the big names who played oh, on that bandstand? Ella Fitzgerald, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, um, uh, Satchmo, Nat King Cole, Josephine Baker, um, Sarah Vaughn. The list goes on and on. Frank Sinatra, Ava Gardner. These were like the biggest names yes. in that time. Yes. And these were a lot of great black artists, but Frank Sinatra was there. This wasn't entirely black artists. It was not entirely black artists. It was up-and-coming artists. And okay. at probably around that time was when uh, Frank was up-and-coming and touring around and making his... Uh, presence now. So just hearing about this, I want to be there. I want to be having my drink, listening to these great artists play. What got you interested in, in putting together a play about this club? Well, um, it's a call to conscious theater company that has um, put this together. And they sent out a, a request for 
plays, which is where Freeman comes in. And uh, I've been working with the company for quite a while, and they've asked me to direct, so that's why I'm here. That's what you got pulled in. So Freeman, they had put out a call. They're looking for plays. How did you come into this story? I saw the um, commission call in my email. I respect Call to Conscience greatly and some of the other works that they've done. And so seeing that and knowing the company with my familiarity and the interest level I had in the story, I applied and uh, they they selected me to write the play. And Freeman, had you been aware of of Club Riviera before all this? Only in myth. (laughs) (laughs) So this is something that people talk about this. There's, There's sort of word of mouth type memories about this, even if it hasn't gotten the scholarly treatment. Absolutely. Um, Every single elder that we've spoken about, about the Club Riviera, who lived in the neighborhood or in the region, spoke about being a child and peering through the windows and and the majesty that was associated with this place. Uh, As uh, Thomasina Clark mentioned, there's a whole bunch of of names that, that have graced the stage, but it was really the aspiration of so many young musicians to one day play at the Riviera. So this was a legendary club. And you know what? We want to hear from you. Do you remember the Club Riviera? Have you heard stories from your parents, from your grandparents? Did you maybe even have your nose pressed up against the glass when you were a little kid? If so, this would be a great call to hear from. 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Now, Thomasina, when you guys were going into the research for this. You couldn't just do an open call over the radio. How did you even begin trying to gather these stories? It's, as you said, research. A lot of us have parents or grandparents that, uh, you know, went into the Riviera. I was fortunate enough to have, I am fortunate enough to have a sister who has a picture of the interior. Wow. Yes. And then uh, I recently met a woman who has... um, Six 16-millimeter reels of footage that she has no clue what's on it. And I'm, I'm, I'm chomping at the bits just to, you know, have an opportunity to see what that is. But um, um, people, once you mention it, people over a certain age have stories. I would say over the age of 70. Um, and real quick, a friend of mine said <laughs> he remembers taking his sister's mascara pen and uh, eyebrow pencil and penciling in a mustache. He was underage, but he wanted to go in, and he thought that would help him look older. So, did, did that work? He got in, and he said he just stayed behind some things so that he wouldn't be seen. That's amazing. Yeah, discovered, yeah. And so you've been you've been basically talking to people that you know, trying to say, what do you know? Who do you know? Who would know more? Freeman is probably the one who has done more talking to anyone. Um, so, Freeman, I'm going to turn that one on over to you. if you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think my research began mostly at the feet of my elders. You know, talking to some of the local musicians who have been doing things for a long time. Uh, ended up speaking to Baba Thadi Kennedy, Baba Kujaliwa Kennedy, uh, and, as well as others, uh, Baba Hassan. Some of these people who, once again... They may not have played at the Riviera just because of their ages, but they may remember the associated characters or the sites that came with the with the uh, territory, as well as just the general uh, vibe and atmosphere at the time. You're talking mm-hmm. about uh, a time in the 1950s and 1940s where the black world in St. Louis was very colorful. Yeah. 
It was it was colorful, and it almost in some ways felt like the center of the universe, the center mm-hmm. of, of the country even. Like, this was right. such a, a big city with so much happening there, and the black culture was so vibrant. Um, Freeman talking to people about that, was it hard just not to get real nostalgic? Well, I think the uh, difficult part was keeping focus. I mean, everything deserved to play. Everything that we heard about. I talked to uh, the historian Gwen Moore at the Missouri Historical Society, and so much of her research wasn't even about the club itself. It was about the political dealings that took place at the club or the political activities associated with Jordan Chambers. So we wanted to tell a story and not just uh, give a collage of all this, this amazing activity that was going on at the time. So, Freeman, I'm glad you mentioned Jordan Chambers. I can't believe it has taken me this long to mention him because (laughs) this guy was a huge deal. And this club, it sounds like, would not have existed without him. Can you tell us what you have learned about Jordan Chambers? He was a power broker. uh, And everything that we read about him and everything that we hear about him, he was someone, one of our elders, who looked at the community and really tried to use his power to get people jobs get people opportunities, make sure that the people who lived around him were straight. So, you know, in some modern parlance, he may have been called a ward boss. Uh, He may have been called, uh, some people may have even said that there was a certain gangster element to him. But what what we know is that he was a person of power who who really used his power to uh, do things that involve self-reliance and Mm self-determination. And he was doing this from the same site that he operated the nightclub out of. Is that correct, Freeman? Yes, he had an office in the nightclub. He also lived in the nightclub, um, from what we're aware of. So, it, it was a, it was it was a community spot, and that that's part of the story that the, the play hopes to tell is that you had these places that were black gathering spots, and like you said, in some in some instances, they felt like the center of the universe because everything happened there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there were there were meetings between political figures at the Club Riviera, uh, partially imagined. And partially, we have whispers of these things having happened uh, that that definitely shaped the politics to come and decades to come in St. Louis. And Thomasina, you gave such a vivid picture of what this club must have looked like. Where did Jordan Chambers, when he was helping people get jobs and sort of running this this political juggernaut, where was he doing this on this site? He was uh, doing it on the lowest level of the building. Now, the building is three stories, not including the basement. And I'm wondering, was there a basement? But the building was three stories. On the very first level, ground level, his apartment was on um, the left or the east side of the building. And I told you this building was about the size of a basketball court. So you can just imagine the massive apartment room, the rooms that he had there. He must have had a sweet pad. Yes. And in there, he also had a place that was called his office. So all kinds of deals were made in his office. On the west side of the building, there was a a tavern or a bar, if you will. And uh, people, if they didn't want to go up to uh, be entertained by the whatever was happening upstairs, they could... Uh, sit at the bars at, on the first floor and get a drink and 
just party down there. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so you think about St. Louis in the 1940s and 1950s. I'm sure Jordan Chambers' ability to, to you know, make things happen wasn't appreciated by mm-hmm. some people in St. Louis's power structure. Mm-hmm. Do you know if he oh, yeah. faced any discrimination or pushback as he's operating this club? <laughs> yeah, he's a black man in St. Louis. He played. He faced a whole lot of pushback. I want to say this. I did a little research on his um, the purchase of his property. Mm-hmm. Um, he it was owned. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the names, but it was owned by a white couple uh, up until June 22nd, when a man, I believe his name was Ogilvy, or either the couple's name is Ogilvy. And sorry, this is June of what year? 1944. Okay. Thank you. Uh, and that's very important. June 22nd, 1944, um, this white guy, I'm going to call him Ogilvy, bought the building from this couple. Six days later, the deed was now in Jordan Chambers' hand. He could not, uh, back in 1944, he could not have gone down there and purchased that. Yeah. Probably sometime in 19, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 2022, some black people not, might not be able to get some things that we're trying to get right now. You know, uh, racism, racism is alive and well, but Jordan Chambers was very astute. And uh, as, as Freeman was saying, he was a man who worked for the good of his people. Yeah. And so he found a way, even if this took a shell buyer or some sort of tr- tricky transaction here, yes. he got ownership of this property in the 1940s. In 1944. Wow. Yes. Freeman. So he, he, he gets this club. This club is a huge deal. People are coming from all over. Um, did the city support this? They allowed him to, to have this club and prosper? Did he have to keep fighting even after he gets the acquisition? I'd say cautious tolerance, acceptance. I mean, if I can say this, Jordan Chambers was the type of man that racists were afraid of. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a powerful man, and he was really the precursor to what we would call black power in the United States. So as much as people may have had things to say or opinions on how he ran his things, they knew uh, there was only so far they could go with those opinions before they had to deal with the, the infrastructure and the support of the people that he had. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, you know, they referred to him as the black mayor of St. Louis or the Negro mayor, I guess they would say at the time mm-hmm. of St. Louis in, in different circles. And there was a there was a kind of a unanimous understanding that if you wanted an appreciable amount of the black vote, this was the man you went and sat down with. This was the man you brokered deals with. This was the man you got approval from. And that stretched not just from local politics, that stretched all the way up to national politics. Mm-hmm. We know that um, JFK, RFK, that there was some sending of condolences at at the death of uh, Jordan Chambers. We know that with uh, President Truman, for example, there was meetings that happened between the two of them where Truman was looking for approval and seeking the black vote. So this, I just want to emphasize the impact that he had was much, much larger. And so many people were afraid of him. Yeah, we should mention Jordan Chambers. He lived from 1896 to 1962. And even though most of the stories of Club Riviera, it's very hard to find documentation of that. There is a lot about Jordan Chambers and his life and influence that you can find online. And now he's depicted in this new play, Live at the Riviera. We're joined today by the playwright, that's Freeman Word, and also the director, Thomasina Clark. Uh, One other facet that I just wanted to mention here as we're thinking about Club Riviera, what that must have been like in its heyday. There was a white nightclub that was right down the street, and this white (laughs) club had a name that, I don't know, I feel like this name kind of speaks volumes. 
Club Plantation. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Thomasina, how were these two venues different? Oh, my gosh. Well, black people couldn't go in there. Uh, If you did, you were going through the back door. Mm -hmm. And that is the entertainment as well. Um, Blacks probably could not go in and be entertained at this club. Um, You know, (laughs) it, it... it, yeah. Well, if I can, yes, if please, I can just add one thing there. I've seen some um, pictures of what their menus and some of their pamphlets and things look mm-hmm. like. And the plantation. They are the, oh, yes, the yeah. club plantation. Mm-hmm. It's the stereotypical uh, menstrual images, you know, degrading images of black folks being used as the, the standard thing that people get when they walk through the door. Freeman, so they you, wanted. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say they wanted black performers. We know that. But they did not want black audience members. Right. Freeman, are you struck by that juxtaposition of this thriving black nightclub just so close to one that had j- just this archaic view and just a much different way of, of dealing with the complexity of the city? Unfortunately, uh, it's relatable. I think that we're struck with that juxtaposition daily here in America. So the play, even though it's set in that historical setting where the racism was so uh, outward, mm-hmm. it was so pronounced we still see those enduring structures and attempts at eroding black institutions today. So there's something special about this story, I think, that is relatable directly to what goes on today. Mm-hmm. And, and if I could say racism, the story I've been told about the Chase Park Plaza, um, the Chase was built to keep blacks, Jews, and other uh, people that were considered uncomfortable for white world. Um, The Park Plaza was a building that was built since the Jews were not admitted. This is the story Mm -hmm. I've been told. And I hope someone can correct this if if it's not true. But the Jews said, well, forget you guys. We're going to build the Park Plaza. I'll shadow you. And then eventually the Park Plaza purchased the chase. Now, that's the story I've always been told. I'm sure we'll hear from somebody. I and hope they someone will, will let come us through know. and let yes. us know. <laughs> they will tell us whether that's correct. But I want to go back to, to Club Riviera for a moment here. Um, Freeman, do we know what led to its closing? Well, the death of Jordan Chambers, I would say, would be the biggest factor. We know that there was always an aggression against its existence because of what it stood for and who ran it and who was behind it. But that intensified and was really, those efforts were really uh, more successful once the club transitioned ownership away from Jordan Chambers shortly after his death. So uh, he died in 1962. It sounds like without him, this club had a very hard time continuing. I want to say it's without him, but I also want to say it's without the circle of trust and the uh, support of the people that he had garnered. You know, there, there was not just a one-man effort as much as this was a man who was very popular mm-hmm. in, in St. Louis. So, Freeman, this is just amazing material. Hearing you and Thomasina tell this story today, um, boy, it just makes me want to go see this play. But how do you deal with so much amazing history and get this down into a play that doesn't run for 17 hours? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you'll have to go and see and find out. But, uh, <laughs> but um I, I think the, the main point is is finding those elements that are timeless in this story. You know, there's so much that has happened at the Club Riviera, so much that has happened in St. Louis in the 40s and 50s, and there's so much that people remember and are also impacted by. So the play tries to reach for those things and communicate those things in a way that makes people think, 
hmm, maybe there's something, something to this, something to this story a little bit deeper. And so the music in this um, era is just extraordinary. Uh, Thomasina, is that something that is also a part oh of this gosh. production? We have a group of young people who are recreating the big band sound. We have, um, we are telling the story about the Riviera, but at the same time, we are telling Jordan Chambers' story. So you couldn't do one without the other. If you have a club, you have to be entertained. So we have a big band, we have dancers, we have uh, vocalists, uh, but at the same time, we are learning about Jordan Chambers and his circle of friends and um, associates that allowed him to do what it is that he did, which was help his people. Thomasina, what's been the biggest challenge in trying to wrangle this history, stage this play? Uh, well, I didn't have to wrangle the history. That was Freeman's job. Um, uh, putting all the moving parts together. This is a cast of thousands, and it's not that many, but it's just a lot going on. Like I said, you've got the band, you've got the dancers, you've got the, the extras, you've got the crew, you've got the actors. And so just putting all of this together, uh, it's been fun. Uh, I've had to sit up nights and rethink, oh, my God, that's not going to work. And the show opens when? It's like, okay, but we're going to make it happen. You're going to make it happen. There are a lot of moments where um, you will be entertained, and then there will, are, there will be a lot of moments when you will be educated. So you will be edutained. Edutained. I love that. (laughs) Freeman, you've learned so much in researching this play. What do you hope those of us listening today, whether or not they're able to make it out for this play on June 23rd, June 24th, what do you hope we take away from this history um, and this period of of St. Louis? There were giants that walked amongst us. Uh, The elders, the ancestors of that time really had our best interests at heart. And I think that there are often misconceptions when talking about American history that there's some sort of uh, period of segregation or enslavement where black people in America just laid down and took it. And this play is to counteract that narrative. It's to tell a different story. The things that we did, the ingenuity we had, the, the brilliance of the people of that time, the bigness of the personalities, the, wor- the impact on, on the world's culture of our music and our sound and our, and our uh, collaborations. Well, people should go see this play live at the Riviera. It will be performed at the Grandel June 23rd and June 24th. You can get tickets at MetroTix website. We'll also tweet a link. You can find that at STL on air. Freeman Word, playwright of Live at the Riviera. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And Thomasina Clark, director of Live at the Riviera. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. This episode was produced by Kayla Drake with audio engineering by Aaron Doerr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. 
and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.